the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll hear from Michael Knowles, author of Speechless, and we'll also take a look at just where inflation rests. Is it 8%, 8.5%, or is it higher in some of the areas that you encounter on a regular basis. We'll get into all of that in the second hour of today's program. Also want to remind you that Mark Schultz will be live in concert on the 29th at Northwest Christian Church. It's a fundraiser for Stand Up Girl and a great opportunity to enjoy an evening of inspiration. You'll laugh. I suspect there might be a tear in your eye, but you'll have a great evening and an opportunity to support Stand Up Girl, this great um, pro-life ministry standupgirlevents.com that's where you can purchase your tickets and get all the important details that's april 29th at northwest christian church in newburgh doors open at 6 15 music starts at 6 45 and the concert from 7 to 8 30 mark schultz the platinum selling award-winning artist well homeland security secretary alejandro mayorkas he testified today that the Department of Homeland Security is creating a disinformation governance board to combat misinformation about the 2022 midterm elections. Uh, he appeared before the House Appropriations Subcommittee to discuss the fiscal 2023 budget for the Department of Homeland Security. So they're already anticipating misinformation. Now, who determines what's false and what's true? Well, there's a political question. Representative Lauren Underwood, a Democrat from Illinois, cited reports on how minority communities are being targeted in misinformation campaigns and asked Mayorkas so what DHS will do to address it. Well, he said a disinformation governments board had recently been created and will be led by Undersecretary for Policy Rob Silvers, co-chair with Principal Deputy General Counsel Jennifer Gaskill. The goal is to bring the resources of the Department of Homeland uh, services uh, together to address this threat. So misinformation as defined by the government will somehow be thwarted by the government. That raises questions for me, and I hope it does for you as well. It doesn't matter what side of the political continuum you are on. At some point, it may swing the other direction. Um, hours uh, later, Politico reported that um, uh, Nina Jankowitz, who previously served as the disinformation fellow at the Wilson Center, will head the board as executive director. Cats out of the bag. Here's what I've been up to for the past two months and why I've been quiet on here. She wrote honored to be serving in the Biden administration, DHS, Gov uh, and helping shape our counter disinformation efforts. Uh, Mayorkas also named Rob Silvers and Jennifer Gaskell as leaders on that board. The news of the Disinformation Governance Board comes two days after Tesla CEO Elon Musk secured a $44 billion deal to buy Twitter, stoking panic among the, the uh, some on the left that the platform would become a free speech free-for-all. Sounding a little more like a 
totalitarian regime all the time. Well, the New York State Court of Appeals rejected the congressional district maps drawn by the Democrat-controlled state legislatures on Wednesday. I should say legislature. They only have the one. The court, which is the highest court in the state of New York, ruled four to three in favor of a complaint brought by Republican voters against the district maps. The state legislature's uh, proposal would have altered three currently Republican districts to make them more favorable to Democrats. The enactment of the congressional and Senate maps by the legislature was procedurally unconstitutional, and the congressional map is also substantially unconstitutional as drawn with impermissible partisan purpose, according to the ruling by Chief Judge Janet DeFore. Well, the court said new district maps will be drawn by an individual appointed by the court instead of the state legislature in accordance with the ruling by the state Supreme Court, which is lower than the appeals court. Well, the court backs a redistricting plan to be executed with the, associ- with the assistance rather of a neutral export designed a, a special uh, designated a special master following submission from the parties, the legislature and any interest stakeholders who wish to be heard, the ruling stated. Well, in addition, the court noted that it will likely be necessary to move congressional and Senate primaries uh, to August in order to allow time to revise district maps. Well, other lower courts have previously ruled in favor of Republicans who claimed that the state legislature's district maps were unconstitutional. The decision today from the Court of Appeals affirm our position that under one party rule, Albany politicians engaged in obvious partisan gerrymandering, violating the state constitution. New York State Minority Leader Robert Ort, a Republican, said in a statement, despite a clear directive from the voters of New York, Albany's ruling class decided to put their political uh, survival ahead of the will of the people. The decision in New York comes a month after a Maryland judge rejected that state's new district map drawn by the Democrat-controlled General Assembly as an extreme gerrymander. Uh, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, Republican, uh, a Republican, I should say, later signed a revised district map into law, calling it a tremendous victory for democracy and for free and fair elections in Maryland. Well, House Democrats are leading a hearing on Supreme Court ethics amid a call for Justice Thomas to resign or be impeached. Well, the House Judiciary Committee's subcommittee on courts, intellectual property and the Internet held a hearing today this afternoon titled Building Confidence in the Supreme Court through Ethics and Recusal Reforms. As Democrats who control the committee express concern over texts sent by Justice Clarence Thomas's wife. Now, Jeannie Thomas had texted then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, urging him to challenge Donald Trump's 2020 election loss. In order, uh, in other messages, rather, Jeannie Thomas suggested Trump should not concede the election to Joe Biden. She also called the 2020 presidential election the greatest heist of our history, end quote. Well, as a result of these messages, Democrats have been criticizing Justice Thomas for not recusing himself from cases related to the January 6th, 2021 Capitol riot. In several cases, they've called for his departure or removal from the court altogether. A memo from Representative Hank Johnson, a Democrat from Georgia who chairs the subcommittee holding the hearing, sent a, a two subcommittee members discuss the um, the impeachment of Supreme Court justices, according to The Hill. It referenced the reporting about text messages between the spouse of an associate justice and the then White House chief of staff. The subcommittee chair said the high court has long operated as though it were above the law and that Clarence Thomas uh, refusal to recuse himself from cases surrounding the January 6th 
events, despite his wife's involvement, raises serious ethical and legal alarm bells. Now, she wasn't actually involved in the events of January 6th, but she has written about them favorably. And the argument is that Justice Clarence Thomas should recuse himself, even though he himself has not spoken to or about those issues. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, Michael Knowles, controlling words, controlling minds. Well, Russia freed a jailed U.S. Marine, Trevor Reed, in exchange for a convicted Russian drug trafficker. Well, the U.S. and Russia made something of an exchange. They've carried out a prisoner swap. That was earlier today, exchanging uh, Trevor Reed. He was a Marine jailed in Moscow for a Russian drug trafficker who's been serving time in America. Uh, The deal comes as tensions between the U.S. and Russia are running pretty high. Moscow's invasion of Ukraine is in its 63rd day. Today, we welcome home Trevor Reed and celebrate his return to the family that missed him dearly. Trevor is a former U.S. Marine, is free from Russian detention, the president said in a statement earlier in the day. I heard in the voices of Trevor's parents how much they've worried about his health and missed his presence. And I was delighted to be able to share with them the good news about Trevor's freedom. Russian President Vladimir Putin left the swap um, open even during the tension that we've been seeing of late. In other news, U.N. chief uh, says that uh, Vladimir Putin has agreed on the evacuations uh, from the war-torn city of uh, Ukraine, or one of them. Uh, Antonio Guterres and Russian President Vladimir Putin on Tuesday agreed to arrange evacuations from the Azovstal steel complex in Ukraine's besieged city of Mariupol. The organization said at a meeting, the two also reportedly agreed in principle that the U.N. and the International Committee of the Red Cross should be involved in that evacuation of civilians who have been holed up there. U.N. spokesperson Stephanie uh, Dergerak told reporters that the pair discussed proposals for humanitarian assistance and evacuation of civilians from conflict zones, namely in relation to the situation in Mariupol. Uh, Further talks on the evacuation will be held with the U.N. Humanitarian Office and the Russian Defense Ministry. Uh, We'll continue to follow that story should it actually materialize as a way for civilians to escape that uh, particular area. Well, in other news, inflation is the result of demand growing faster than supply. Central banks can deal with the demand part. The problem is that the world they confront uh, in uh, coming years might be one of recurrent supply blocks. Well, Russian gas cutoff is symbolizing a new era of supply shocks and inflation. In decades preceding the pandemic, they were characterized by chronically weak demand and a seemingly limitless supply of capital, labor and raw materials, resulting in persistently low inflation and interest rates. Well, those conditions have since flipped. Demand is robust, especially in the United States, where fiscal and monetary support have been especially generous. Advanced economies report shortages of labor and COVID-19 continues to snarl supply chains, most recently in China. Well, meanwhile, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has triggered widespread shortages of commodities and in particular for food and energy. Well, today, Russia said it halted gas deliveries to Poland and Bulgaria, pushing up European gas prices. The same day, Indonesia announced a ban on the export of crude palm oil to limit domestic cooking oil prices. Well, maybe this is a run of bad luck that will 
be behind us in a year or so, or maybe it was a prelude to an era in which geopolitical tensions, protectionist policies, and natural disasters repeatedly stressed the world's supply networks. Central banks, which spent the last decade fighting off uh, deflationary headwinds, might spend the next um, uh, period of time battling inflationary headwinds as well. Well, inflation in the long run is what monetary policymakers want it to be, but the uh, the ease of achieving a target rate of inflation depends on how much the surrounding environment adds to or subtracts from cost pressures. Inflation surged in the 1970s, some of us recall, because central banks failed to curb excess demand and allowed prices and wages to feed on themselves. But their job was made harder by repeated supply shocks that pushed up costs. Well, the most notable shock was the Arab oil embargo of 1973. Food prices were also driven up by the rising cost of energy and fertilizer and crop failure in Australia, Canada, here in the U.S. and the Soviet Union. It was the Soviet Union in 73. Productivity growth slowed and, well, there were other factors that played a role as well. So war, sanctions, export controls, natural disasters all threaten commodity supply chains, challenging central banks, inflation goals. So we should be prepared for what could be some pretty rough um, um, weather in the days ahead. We'll continue to follow that story as it um, as it develops. In another uh, bit of news, after three years, the United States might be soon moving past the coronavirus pandemic. Well, that's according to the country's leading infectious disease expert. Yes, Dr. Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's been the mouthpiece for the government's coronavirus response across two presidential administrations, said during an interview on Tuesday that the U.S. was certainly out of the pandemic stage, though he cautioned that the larger global pandemic was still ongoing. We're certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase, Dr. Fauci said during an interview with PBS NewsHour, Judy Woodruff, according to a transcript of that interview. Well, the good doctor's answer came immediately after he was initially asked, how close are we to the end of this pandemic? He called that an unanswerable question. We don't have 900,000 new infections a day and tens of and tens and tens of thousands of hospitalizations and thousands of deaths. We are at a low level right now, Dr. Fauci added. So if you're saying, are we out of the pandemic phase phase in the country? We are, end quote. Well, the president's chief medical advisor then followed his answer up by saying that the United States was not going to eradicate this virus and that government should continue to intermittently vaccinate people per the transcript. He suggested that people may have uh, have to get vaccinated yearly and longer than they might expect in an effort to keep infections as low as possible. That might be very uh, might be every year that might be longer in order to keep that level low. But right now we are not in the pandemic phase in this country. He repeated, well, as for the rest of the world, the doctor said there is uh, no doubt this pandemic is still ongoing. So Dr. Fauci says we are out of the pandemic phase, which raises questions about some of the fights that are continuing with regard to mask mandates that were set to expire next week. Well, Republicans are drafting legislation in an attempt to uh, block uh, a move by the Biden administration. They've confirmed talks about using Veterans Affairs resources to treat migrants at the southern border. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas confirmed that his department is in talks to divert Veterans Affairs resources, doctors and nurses to help care for illegal immigrants 
Um, on Wednesday, well, Mayorkas uh, made the statement during testimony before the House Appropriations Committee. Representative Ashley Henson, a Republican from Iowa, pressed uh, the good secretary to answer whether the resources would be diverted as part of the DHS plan to address an unexpected spike in migration, which could be avoided if, well, 42 remained in place. We've heard that the administration is considering removing health care prov- uh, providers from the VA, for example, doctors and nurses whose taxpayer dollars and their intent is to help care for our veterans, Henson began. So my question to you today is yes or no. Is the Department of Homeland Security planning to relocate resources, doctors and nurses from our VA system intended to care for veterans to help care for illegal immigrants at our southern border? End quote. Mayorkas first attempted to skirt around the question. Let me be clear, he said, which is a space filler, because an interagency effort is precisely what the challenge of migration requires. And it's not specific to 2022, 2021, 2020 or any of the years preceding, he said, before Henson cut him off. I'm just asking you a yes or no question, she pressed. Are you planning on taking resources away from our veterans to help deal with the surge at our southern border? That's a yes or no question. Congresswoman. The resources that the medical personnel from the Veterans Administration would allocate to this effort is under the judgment of the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, who prioritizes the interests of veterans above all others for very noble and correct, he added. Now, interestingly, he's yet to answer the question. Well, Henson then pressed him once again on whether he was aware of any conversations he or others at the DHS have had about reallocating VA resources. I have not personally, but of course, our teams, our personnel have. And I'd be very pleased to follow up with you, he responded. Well, Republicans in the Senate have already taken action in an effort to block the Biden administration from using any VA resources to address the border crisis. A group of senators introduced a bill on Tuesday that would prohibit the use by the Department of Veterans Affairs of funds to provide emergency assistance at the southern border of the U.S., resulting from the repeal of certain public health orders. And for other purposes, they were referring, of course, to Title 42. Republicans in the House took a similar action earlier in April. Well, the administration had been preparing for a spike in migration that would come after it terminates Title 42, the Trump era COVID-19 measure. But a federal judge in Louisiana blocked the administration from ending the policy Tuesday. The judge said the policy must remain in place until the administration can negotiate a satisfactory plan with border states and how to deal with subsequent border surge. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, Michael Knowles will join me and we'll also take a look at inflation. Is it just 8.5% or higher? Well, I think it's much higher. We'll talk about it. Well, Volodymyr Zelensky marked the 36th anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster with a speech condemning Russia's completely irresponsible actions around nuclear power plants during its invasion and called for global control of the Kremlin's nuclear capabilities. Calling it a 2A task force, Donald Trump Jr. is launching a new gun rights group that he says will be a vehicle for fighting against democratic gun control efforts. 
Facing the ghost of de Blasio, New York City Mayor Eric Adams promised to crush crime, but is being thwarted by remnants of his predecessor, according to experts. And Bill Clinton said nothing he could have done as a leader would have prevented Putin's path to authoritarianism and his invasion of Ukraine. Using the same old scapegoat, when Democrats uh, have election year struggles, much like November's upcoming midterms, the media blames messaging woes. Well, NBC News sounded the alarm over the Supreme Court potentially siding with a former high school football coach's lawsuit over on-field prayers. An op-ed published Monday by NBC News proceeded to sound the alarm over the Supreme Court potentially siding with former high school football coach Joe Kennedy in his lawsuit against the Bremerton, Washington School District following his firing for on-field prayers. Writing in the op-ed, Liberal University of Miami law professor Caroline Mala Corbin warned that if the court sided with Kennedy, it would bulldoze over protections for minorities in the name of religious liberty and that it would continue a line in other cases uh, in which the court has allowed Christians to violate anti-discrimination laws, end quote. And by the way, these were private prayers. The coach did not invite nor encourage his um, teammates or his team to pray with him. This was a decision he made on his own. Mark Levin said the same liberal hypocrites who cry foul over a big oil titan's behavior are aghast when someone intercedes in their big tech cartel. Pointing to free speech consequences, a New York Times writer said the 2016 presidential election and Brexit are what can go wrong when social media fails to manage content. NBC News was roasted by critics after it posted a tweet describing one of the winners of Jeopardy by her sexual orientation rather than her name. little virtue signaling. Carol Beth Litkouchy, or something very like that, points out that we have a legal right to know what our children are taught in school, and the public schools have a legal duty to tell us. Tucker Carlson says everyone will have a voice on Twitter, and that's what critics are mad about. What they don't want is the coming of diversity. Rebecca Grant reminds that after his key visit, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin laid down a new take on Russia with six words. We want to see Russia weakened. Judith Miller said despite trying to bloody and bomb Ukraine, Putin may soon face one of his worst strategic nightmares. NATO is about to get larger. That certainly is one thing he did not want to see. And why are unions growing? Well, experts say it's not necessarily wages infuriating workers. It's the wage gap between the people who own the companies and their employees. Moscow warns the West is bringing on World War III. The United States pressed allies to further ramp up military support for Ukraine on Tuesday with a clash between the West and the Kremlin once again in the spotlight after Russia warned of the real danger of World War Three. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin pledged to move heaven and earth to help Kiev win the war as he opened a meeting of NATO defense officials at a U.S. Air Force base in Germany. And the Wall Street Journal weighs in. The risk is serious and it's real. It should not be underestimated. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said in a Russian state televised interview broadcast Monday night, under no circumstances should a third world war be allowed to happen, he said, adding that there can be no winners in a nuclear war. End quote. Mr. Lavrov said that the West was increasing the risk of a bigger conflict by providing arms to Ukraine. NATO is, in essence, going to war with Russia through a proxy and arming that proxy. Lloyd Austin uh, says this Russian foreign minister World War Three rhetoric is a da- is dangerous and unhelpful. 
Russian separatists launched attacks in Moldova, raising concerns as another nation is drawn into the conflict. Romania, Moldova's neighbor to the West, is watching with angst. Wall Street Journal says Moldova said it was placing its security forces on alert Tuesday following a series of explosions in its Transnistria, a breakaway pro-Russian enclave that has stirred concern over the role that some 1,500 Russian troops stationed there could play in shoring up Moscow's military campaign in neighboring Ukraine. Authorities in the separatist nation allege that three separate terrorist attacks on Monday and Tuesday had targeted a military base, two Soviet-era radio towers broadcasting Russian-language stations, and the headquarters of the state security service in Tiraspol. No casualties were reported. And Fox News says they uh, they come a day after several explosions believed to be caused by rocket propelled grenades were reported to have hit the Ministry of State Security in the city of Tiraspol, the region's capital. FBI Director Christopher Wray on violence uh, directed at police says it's unlike anything I've ever seen in my 36 years in law enforcement. From that story, FBI Director Ray addressed the skyrocketing rate of murders against police officers Sunday, saying the surge is far outpacing general violent crime. Ray made the commands, uh, the comments rather, during a 60-minute interview on Sunday, saying murders of police officers rose 59 percent in 2021. The total murder rate rose 29 percent last year, and the U.S. lost 73 police officers to such attacks in 2021. Violence against law enforcement in this country is one of the biggest phenomena that I think doesn't get enough attention, Ray said, adding that officers are being murdered at a rate of nearly one every five days. What to expect from Elon Musk's Twitter? Well, According to National Review, nowhere has Musk said that Twitter will be entirely devoid of moderation. What he seems to be saying instead, what Twitter's critics have demanded, is an end to the caprice. It is, of course, entirely possible for Twitter to construct a set of uh, neutrally applicable rules that require people of all political viewpoints to engage with each other in a civil way. The problem has been that, in practice at least, Twitter's rules were achieving no such thing and that, over time, users had noticed. And from MSN, academics have increasingly voiced the call for such censorship. Harvard Law Professor Jack Goldsmith and University of Arizona Law Professor Andrew Keen Woods have called for Chinese-style censorship of the Internet, stating in The Atlantic that in the great debate of the past two decades about freedom versus control of the network, China was largely right and the United States was largely wrong, end quote. A glimpse of that future was made clear by Twitter last week when the company declared that it would ban any ads disagreeing with its view on climate change. Previously, Democratic senators demanded that Twitter expand censorship to include blocking disinformation on climate change, as well as an array of other areas. So we should move closer to uh, the People's Republic of China, these law professors suggest. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to wind our way through the day's news and a conversation with Michael Knowles coming up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the world is beginning to realize that Ukraine could actually pull off a victory 
against Russia. U.S. and Germany are putting more resources behind that very idea. From the story in The Economist, America has provided more military and civilian aid to Ukraine than all other countries combined. Mr. Blinken and Austin announced an additional $713 million in financing to pay for weapons for Ukraine and allied countries. Perhaps more striking still is America's changing attitude. The judge from the uh, secretary's comments America is embracing the idea that Ukraine might not only survive, but emerge victorious against Russia. They have the mindset that they want to win. We have the mindset that we want to help them win, and we are going to do that, declared Mr. Austin. Financial Times reports that Ukraine's efforts have been noticed globally, and they're changing minds even beyond America. Germany is beginning to rise up against Russia and deliver military aid to Ukraine as well. Well, Beijing residents begin panic buying amid lockdown rumors. Base supply, uh, basic supplies started to fly off supermarket shelves over the weekend as the authorities warned of a grim situation and schools and gyms began to close down with reports that the coronavirus has been spreading stealthily in the city for almost a week. Shoppers flocked into stores to stock up on vegetables, toilet paper, instant noodles, anticipating the imminent announcement of harsh restrictions to curtail their movements again. Social media was flooded with photos of empty shelves and some online grocery apps ran out of supplies. Praying for the people in Beijing. Director James Gunn defends Chris Pratt's role in Marvel after the backlash over his Christian faith. Well, the director, James Gunn, on Monday defended the superstar actor Chris Pratt after some left-wing fans called for Marvel to recast Pratt over his public Christianity, which was equated with homophobia. The director said that Chris Pratt never uh, would never replace be replaced by uh, as Star Lord. um, But if he ever was, we would all um, be going with him. This is not the first time uh, that he's been targeted. And back in 2020, his colleagues came uh, first time uh, to target him um, and, def- and some others came to his defense. President Biden's undisclosed millions in income and Hunter's debts paid off is raising some question questions. Rather, Joe Biden has repeatedly claimed to have never discussed any of Hunter Biden's business dealings. But a recently uncovered email from Hunter's infamous laptop revealed that prior to Joe's presidential run, he paid off over eight hundred thousand dollars of his son's debts. The email dated January 17th, 2019, was sent by Hunter and then personal assistant to an accountant at the Global D's firm, it includes the message, I spoke with Hunter today regarding his bills. It is my understanding that Hunter's dad will cover these bills in the short term as Hunter's transaction uh, transitions in his career. The senior Biden personal aide was also CC'd on the email. Meanwhile, a recent review of Joe Biden's financial records revealed that he failed to disclose $5.2 million in income between 2017 and 2019 to the Office of Government Ethics. Now, if he wasn't holding office at the time, I'm not sure how relevant this is to criminal charges or if he's linked to the investigation of his son. But these are new revelations as Republican Senator Ron Johnson contends. This is another disturbing piece of information that raises questions that deserve answers. When will the corporate media start doing their job and ask President Biden these questions? And when will President Biden start being honest with the public? The American people deserve the truth, end quote. Well, Russia and U.S. swapped prisoners, and that was an exchange that had not been anticipated, but certainly welcomed. And a coalition of 27 parent groups are urging the education secretary against the gender identity rewrite of Title IX. 
Joe Biden plans to grant clemency to 78 people, including a pardon for a former Secret Service agent. President Biden approved ratings. Uh, approval rating is underwater in 40 states, according to the Morning Consult. And the inflation, uh, if inflation is draining your wallet, grocery cart and gas tank, it's far steeper than the 8 percent. We'll talk more about that later in the program. The Labor Department March inflation numbers released this month skyrocketed past February's hitting a 12-month increase of 8.5% and the steepest annual increase since 1981. Well, that's no small figure, but most Americans know the inflation they encounter at this grocery store, checkout, the gas pump, and the car lot leasing office is far higher than that. At least 58% of the U.S. population has natural antibodies from previous uh, COVID infection, and Oklahoma has become the first state to ban non-binary identification on birth certificates. On this day in history, 1950, Britain formally recognizes the state of Israel. 1965, journalist Edward R. Murrow dies in Pauling, New York. 1968, President Herbert H. Humphrey declares his candidacy for the Democratic nomination for president less than a month after President Lyndon Baines Johnson announced that he would not run for re-election. 1978, convicted Watergate defendant John D. Ehrlichman is released from an Arizona prison after serving 18 months. 1982, the trial of John W. Hinckley Jr., who shot four people, including President Ronald Reagan, begins in Washington. My understanding is he's performing at a sold-out concert in the next few days. He has since been released. 2006, construction begins on the 1776-foot Freedom Tower at the site of the World Trade Center in New York. 2009, a 23-month-old Mexico City toddler dies at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, becoming the first swine flu death in the U.S. 2009, General Motors announces plans to cut 21,000 hourly jobs and scrap the Pontiac brand. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un makes history by crossing over to South Korea to meet with President Moon Jae-in. It was the first time a member of the Kim dynasty had set foot on southern soil since the end of the Korean War in 1953. Well, later in the program, we're going to, um, in fact, in the next hour, we'll uh, talk with Michael Knowles. He is the author of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. And we'll also take a look at inflation and whether or not it's actually as uh, low, even though it seems high, as has been uh, announced. So we'll get into all of that a bit uh, a bit later. Well, the CNN plus super fans delusion, as it's being referred to, the massive failure of media outlet CNN streaming app CNN plus is becoming the stuff of legend. Report obtained by Axios reveals an apparent level of delusion among CNN brass. That's astounding. CNN plus executives asserted that the startup app would become more profitable than the cable channel itself within a decade and that it would eventually attract some 30 million paying subscriptions out of a market that was estimated to be 72 million people. Executives were sold on the idea that CNN Plus would attract 29 million CNN superfans and that CNN Plus would eventually overtake the cable channel. In other words, they were sold on a dream that had little solid research projection data um, were sold uh, to back it up. It looks like they believed streaming app services are the future and that cable will be going the way of the dodo bird. Well, the only dodos are now at CNN and they um, paid dearly for that miscalculation. Let's see. Um, where did I leave off here? <laughs> 
Harvard University is joining other Ivy League universities in looking into their own history of slavery, looking to set up memorials and pay reparations. New York Times reports that Harvard University is committing $100 million to study and redress its ties to slavery. The university's president announced Tuesday, and with that money, will create an endowed legacy of slavery fund, which will continue researching and memorializing that history, working with descendants of black and Native American people enslaved at Harvard, as well as their broader communities. With the announcement, Harvard joins many other universities, including Brown, Georgetown and Princeton Theological Seminary, that are not just grappling with their complicity in the institution of slavery, but also putting financial resources behind efforts to make amends. National Review further reports that other ideas include honoring enslaved people through memorials, research and curriculum, and creating partnerships with historically black colleges and universities and tribal colleges. The committee also recommends the funds go toward identifying and building relationships with the direct descendants of enslaved peoples who worked on the Harvard campus and or were uh, who were enslaved by the university's leadership, faculty and staff. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Michael Knowles, controlling words, controlling minds, and a look at inflation. Is it actually 8.5% or much higher in the areas that you encounter on a regular basis? News and traffic are up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that the culture war is over and the culture is lost. The left's assault on liberty, virtue, decency, the Republican form of government the founders established and Western civilization has succeeded. Well, how did we get to this point? That's the question. Well, in speechless, controlling words, controlling minds, national bestselling author and political commentator Michael Knowles of the Daily Wire reveals how political correctness is part of a large political agenda to stifle free thought. Through strategic control of language, he exposes and diagnoses the losing strategy that conservatives have fallen for and shows how they can change course and start winning. Well, my next guest once again is uh, Michael Knowles. He is a conservative political commentator, the host of The Michael Knowles Show at The Daily Wire. In addition to his daily podcast, he frequently writes opinion commentary and speaks on college campuses for the Young America's Foundation. In 2017, he published an Amazon best-selling book, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a comprehensive guide, which consisted of chapter headings and 266 accompanying blank pages. Shortly after the book was released, then-President Donald Trump tweeted his endorsement of the book. Once again, he joins us today to talk about his latest, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Michael Knowles, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's so good to be with you, and I'm I'm so uh, honored that you have mentioned both books. One without any words in it, and then the other entirely about words. Now, is, <laughs> what a breath to talk about. Is there an irony in that? <laughs> One on language, the other lacking language. <laughs> yes, I, I felt it was really the only way to follow up with the number one best-selling blank book. And I, I was, I'm really honored. I, I have to tell you, when I, when I came out with Speechless, I feared that people would not want to buy the book. It seems like a little bit of a dry topic, you know, <laughs> words and manipulation of language. And I feared that the critics would tell me to stick to what I know, namely nothing. But I'm, I'm really pleased, and I, I thank everybody who's made it, made Speechless a number one national bestseller, because I, I think this is 
the the biggest problem that we face as a country. I know we're focused on wars overseas, we're focused on the economy and immigration, but frankly, I think that the left's manipulation of our language is the most effective tool that they have at reshaping our political order because it reshapes our minds and it frankly reshapes our whole society. You make the point in the book that people often respond to that by saying, well, it's just simply semantics. But if we understand what semantics means, we understand the importance of resting control over the language and the impact that ultimately has the potential to make. That's right. Semantics means the meaning of words. So when people say, oh, it's just semantics, you think, well, that's that's sort of the whole argument, isn't it? And, and we're reminded that that whoever frames the issue wins the debate. And I, I think this is why the left is so focused on language. Who cares, they'll say, uh, if you call an illegal alien an undocumented American. And obviously the left cares, because what the left understands is that an illegal alien has no right to be in this country. But an undocumented American is an American by definition, so they obviously do. And I think this is why you're, you're seeing in particular the battle over the pronouns. Mm-hmm. So often I'll hear my conservative friends, they'll say, oh, just give up the pronouns. Just call Bruce Jenner she. It's not a big deal. But, well, I, I think it probably is a big deal. I think that's why the left is investing so much time and energy in, into making us call men she and women he, because if Caitlyn Jenner is a she, then she has every right to use the women's bathroom or play women's sports. If Bruce Jenner is a he, then he obviously does not have a right to, to the women's bathroom. So I think that the reason that this gender pronoun issue has become such a focal point is that if the left can redefine sexual difference, the fundamental distinction in human nature, then the left can redefine anything. And I think that's really their, their goal here is to redefine all the words in an attempt to remake reality entirely. The problem is they understand that the rest of us may not. Um, You write that the irony lies at the heart of political correctness. To call something politically correct is to acknowledge that it is not correct, at least by the standard of reality. A man in a dress is a man, but according to political correctness, he is a trans woman, a term with the same ironic structure. To call someone a trans woman is to acknowledge that he is not really a woman at all. Uh, understanding the power of the language we use, we choose to use, or we're being forced to use, really is at the heart of the issue. Yes, and we have been told since political correctness hit the public imagination about 30 years ago, I think I argue in Speechless that it has been developed for about a century, but we became aware of it about three or four decades ago, and we were told it was just a way of being polite. Yes, it uses euphemisms, you know, soft words to shoot and harsh realities, but but we do that all the time. When I refer to a woman of a certain age instead of to an old hag, <laughs> I'm, I'm just being polite. I'm, I'm softening reality. Can I just but say thank you before you move on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I, speaking to someone who is obviously 29 years old, I, I would never use either of those terms. Uh, but, but, you know, there is a big difference here between the way that the left and the right use euphemism, because it's one thing to, to say, I'm going to go to the powder room instead of the bathroom. Uh, there might be powder in that room, depending on whatever, whatever else you're going to do there either. Uh, but, but there's a difference between that and referring to, for instance, a justice-involved person. That's the new euphemism for criminal. <laughs> it's used in the academy. It's used in legal circles. And it doesn't just soften the reality of a criminal. It inverts it. Whatever you want to call a criminal, he sure isn't involved in justice. And I I think you you see it clearly as well in this trans woman argument. Whatever you want to call Bruce Jenner, 
he's not a woman of any kind. And so I don't think it's a, a matter of being polite. I think it's a way of deceiving people. I think it's a way of lying to people. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we're living in those delusions. Right now, we're living in, in that culture of lies. You write that conservatives have failed to thwart political correctness because most of us don't understand what it is. Political correctness is not merely a synonym for censorship, though the two concepts are related. Political correctness is a standard of speech and behavior along leftist ideological lines. It no doubt censors certain words and actions, but then so does chivalry. Let's begin by um, talking about what political correctness is. It's not a matter of just censorship and liberty. It's much more profound than that. And you've touched on it already. Well, uh, thank you. I'm glad you, you focused on that point, because I think this is the essential point of the book. It is what I'm trying to get across to conservatives who may have their hearts in the right place, they have the best of intentions, but I think they are unwittingly actually advancing the cause of political correctness because they fail to recognize what PC is. So there's this strange fact that you know, we've been fighting over PC for several decades, and it seems the harder we fight, the more ground we lose. I think it is because the right has understood this or misunderstood this to be a battle between free speech and censorship. You always hear today, free speech is is on the decline or cancel culture is on the rise. But in many ways, we're much freer to say certain things today than we were in the past. We're we're now permitted to say all of those naughty words that George Carlin said could not be said on TV. In fact, these days, it seems like it's almost obligatory. Uh, However, we're not allowed to state plain political truths. We're not allowed to say the man is not a woman. We're not allowed to say the baby is a baby in some cases. We're not allowed to say that our country is a good place or we could be accused of bigotry or, or, or white supremacy or, or any other sort of slogan. We're not allowed to question our elections. We are not allowed to raise questions about massive public health uh, policies that are, are being advocated. So there's a little bit of a give and take. I think what's, what's really happening here is less a battle between pure free speech on the one hand and pure censorship on the other as it is shifting the limits of discourse. There are always going to be limits. There are always going to be taboos. There are always going to be standards. And what the left did in the middle of the 20th century was upend all of those standards. And now I think they're being resettled again in ways that are are really advantageous to the left and really harmful to the traditional American way of life. We're talking this afternoon with Michael Knowles. He's written a very important book. I would highly recommend all of us read it. Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. We need to take a quick break, but we will continue in just a few moments. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Michael Knowles, his latest book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. I think it's absolutely essential that we better understand what political correctness is, the power that it has, and the power we can deprive it if we understand the role that we ought to play in resisting this uh, this move. Now, you make the point that conservatives have wasted decades attempting to thwart political correctness, or PC, through dime store philosophizing over free speech, progressively abandoning our, substan- our substantive cultural inheritance for a misbegotten notion of liberty that can never exist in practice. Have we wasted so much time, as you point out, decades, that we can't, once understanding political correctness, do something to reverse the trend in the culture, which you know sort of came late to this process, that the culture was the focus. Can we reverse what we're seeing? 
I do think there's a glimmer of hope. You know, the difference between a conservative optimist and a conservative pessimist is a conservative pessimist says things can't get any worse, and a conservative optimist says, oh, yes, they can. (laughs) But but I I do think that there is a glimmer of hope here. And you're seeing it at school boards. You're seeing it with parents showing up and saying, we're not going to let you indoctrinate our kids with these radical gender and racial theories. These are parents who run the gamut of class, of race, of geography. So I, I do think the American people still have common sense. But our ruling class, unfortunately, does not have common sense. And that includes the so-called conservative leaders and Republican leaders. And I think one of the biggest issues with our misunderstanding of PC is we don't understand what liberty is. So we think that because you're allowed to say a bunch of swear words on TV, that you somehow have more freedom of speech in in, in certain ways. But it's it's not – it isn't quite so simple. Uh, You know, what our founding fathers understood is that liberty is not licentiousness. Liberty is not the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it. Liberty is the right to do what you ought to do. Liberty intrinsically Mm -hmm. has limits. The, The way I would bring it down to earth is just that According to the modern liberal view of liberty, uh, the heroin addict is the freest person in the world as long as he's got a couple bucks in his pocket and he can shoot up. Isn't he? He's so free. He's pursuing his desires. Now, of course, you and I know that man's not free at all. He's a slave. He's a slave to his base appetites, his basest passions. And in the traditional American and just generally classical understanding, we've understood liberty as the suppression of our basest appetites and and bringing them into accord with our higher will. That was the whole point of liberal education is to make sense of your liberty and to enable you to govern yourself and to be a citizen. This is why when John Adams says the Constitution is built for moral and religious people, he's not he's not thumping his Bible. He's not being superstitious. He's just making an obvious observation about politics, which is that if if you do not govern yourself someone is going to have to come in and rule you. And so I think what the left did was they basically blew up all the standards at the latter part of the 20th century, and they upended our ability to govern ourselves and our higher liberty. And now that we're all living in a sort of decadent and licentious culture, uh, they are the ones that are imposing the necessary limits on us. You point out in your chapter on standards and practices that Uh, Radical theorists hadn't long pursued culture as their means of revolution before artists and producers of culture uh, took notice. And you give something of a history. Talk a bit about how the communists figured out that their revolution could never succeed as long as the common man was uh, attached to his own culture. And the significance of culture being the focus of uh, so much of what the left is trying to impact and change because it has the potential to have much broader impact in other areas. Well, this is the brilliance of the the man who I identify as the Mac Daddy godfather. (laughs) He was an an early cultural Marxist. I know that it's now politically incorrect to use that term, but he's a very, very prominent Marxist philosopher who focused on culture. His name is Antonio Gramsci. And and he recognized that the, the reason the Marxian revolution had not happened is because the radicals had all these wonderful theories for upending society and and liberating the poor oppressed masses. But the poor oppressed masses actually didn't really like the theories. (laughs) They liked their own culture and their own people and their own rituals. And so what Gramsci recognized is that the radicals had to attain cultural hegemony. They had to go in, infiltrate the established institutions, transform those institutions uh, into a position that is uh, more advantageous to them. 
And then and only then would they be able to make lasting gains. So this this was followed up by other leftist intellectuals. I'm thinking of the Frankfurt School, the critical theorists. Critical race theory is very much in the news these days. One of those critical theorists, Herbert Marcuse, reappears in the 1960s. He becomes the father of the new left, radical student movement. And this is where you saw the importation of Mao's writings, uh, you know, the communist dictator in China. You saw the rise of other radical groups, uh, student groups and non-student groups in the United States. And so I I don't want to sound like a tinfoil hat person or like a conservative broken record when when I mention that political correctness has Marxist roots. And Marx isn't responsible for every problem in the world, but he is responsible for a great many of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the, the people who developed this called themselves Marxists. And the phrase political correctness actually is a Marxist phrase. It was used by old line communists. And I think actually the whole endeavor comes from a line that Karl Marx wrote to Arnold Ruga, which is uh, when he called for the ruthless criticism of all that exists. So I think that is largely what political correctness has been about. It has been about ruthlessly criticizing the nation, the family, the culture, the religion, the beliefs, the values, everything about the country. Hollow it out from within so that in that now ruin of a civilization, a revolution can take place along leftist lines. So when the founder of Black Lives Matter says that I am thoroughly trained in Marxism, we ought to take that seriously, recognizing what that means. When BLM says, uh, you know, hollowing out the, the traditional family is one of our goals, we need to take that seriously and recognize what the ultimate goal is. Yes, when people tell you who they are, you should believe that. Absolutely. <laughs> it's not, just, not just that one founder of BLM, but actually her two co-founders as well, self-described Marxists on the website they Talk about disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family. Last I checked, you know, I've got some, I've got many friends of color all around the country, and their most important racial issue, to their minds, is not upending the nuclear family. But but that is something that Marxist activists have been after for a century. And, and so I think we do need to believe them, and uh, I think we need to recognize that the threat here is not not just to some policy or some other policy or one city or another. This is posing an existential threat to our entire way of life. Yeah, absolutely. And you can count me among your African-American friends or black or Negro or whichever is in vogue uh, at the moment. Uh, Once again, we're talking this afternoon with Michael Knowles. He's the author most recently of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. And by the way, there are lots of words in this book, if you're wondering. Uh, (laughs) Covers all the important issues and helps us as conservatives recognize where we have fallen short, first of all, in understanding what political correctness is and then responding in a way that's going to be uh, effective. You have a chapter on the tolerant left and make reference early on to Maxine Waters, that influential Democrat politician who held uh, elected office since, as you point out, uh, and I'm reminded, the Ford administration. Um, and she has uh, suggested that um, uh, those who opposed at that time Donald Trump uh, need to pull out all the stops. We need, need to make the world a place where anyone who supports or worked with or embraces Donald Trump and his worldview, uh, there's no place for them in the world. That doesn't really reflect what we were led to believe political correctness was about and the tolerant left uh, urging us to embrace what um, we otherwise would not. Well, that's right. The tolerance was always merely an instrument. It was just a a tool, a a fake out, so that they could install new standards in the world. I think of Maxine Waters and and other prominent Democrats 
who openly called for violence against conservatives because what the left did was define their own violence as speech and define conservative speech as violence. And I think this has roots going back to Herbert Marcuse and the new left. There's an infamous little essay that he wrote called Repressive Tolerance. And in it, he said that tolerance cannot tolerate intolerance. And he said that uh, a liberating tolerance would basically shut up all the conservatives and encourage speech from leftists. And people don't really talk about this essay very much anymore. But I think they should, because I think actually he makes a very good point here. Any, any speech regime is going to have limits. It, he's right when he says tolerance cannot tolerate intolerance. Actually, when I think of John Locke, father of liberalism, in his letter concerning toleration, he said that some people cannot be tolerated. He was talking specifically about atheists. He said it would undermine his entire philosophy. Uh, John Milton said the same thing in Areopagitica. It's one of the most famous defenses of free speech in history. And he, he said that uh, atheists and Catholics <laughs> should not be tolerated. I'm glad that that is no longer in effect as a papist myself, but I see why he said it. What, what they were arguing is that we have to agree on some basic things in order to get along together, in order to have a political community. If we have nothing in common, if nothing is settled, then, then we do not have a nation or a political community. And what the left has done very successfully over the last century is upend every single thing that we had settled. We don't even speak the same language anymore. I'm not just talking about Spanish. I'm talking about English. Mm -hmm. We don't even know what a man is and what a woman is, so we can't agree on very much else. And I think it's important, while we talk about keeping an open mind and we talk about free and open debate, I think it's important for conservatives to recognize that certain things really do need to be settled. We need to agree on a few basic things in this country if we are to get along, because the, the calls for perfectly open, totally tolerant societies are, are not possible. They've never existed anywhere in the world. Uh, George Soros, leftist financier, his, his foundation is called the Open Societies Foundation. And I, I think what has happened in our country is our minds have been so open that our brains have fallen out. <laughs> and that's now <laughs> closing again along the lines of the left. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation again. My guest, Michael Knowles, his book titled Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, is published by Regnery. You need to get your copy today. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Michael Knowles. He's a conservative political commentator and host of The Michael Knowles Show at The Daily Wire. In addition to his daily podcast, he frequently writes opinion, commentary, and speaks on college campuses for the Young America's Foundation. In 2017, he published an Amazon best-selling book, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a Comprehensive Guide. It consisted of chapter headings and 266 accompanying blank pages. <laughs> well, shortly after the book uh, was released, the President Donald Trump tweeted his endorsement of it at that time. So uh, today we're talking about his book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Now, we touched on this just a moment ago, uh, but talk a little bit about the First Amendment and the fact that it doesn't require value neutral uh, a value-neutral public square. We oftentimes acquiesce because we think that unity requires that kind of embrace of pretty much everything, at least quiet embrace, if not endorsement. Yes, I think this has been one of the big missteps that conservatives have made because when, when we call ourselves free speech absolutists, and I've heard a number of conservatives say that, I think what we imagine ourselves to be standing for 
is the free speech American tradition, truth, justice, and the American way. But we ought to remember that there are uh, whole swaths of speech that have been off limits from the beginning of the country. I'm thinking of threats, fighting words, uh, sedition, obscenity, uh, for instance, which are still illegal today, though these laws are not really enforced quite as much. When we call ourselves free speech absolutists, one, we're, we're speaking in terms that would be alien to the First Amendment and mm-hmm. to the philosophy of the founding fathers. But two, we are actually advancing political correctness because remember, the whole point of political correctness is to upend traditional standards. So whether you go along with the new woke standard or if you just give up standards entirely, either way, wittingly or unwittingly, you, you are advancing that purpose. So I think it's important to remember that that we actually can make some judgments about things, especially on obscenity. You know, just about a dozen years ago, we put a pornographer in federal prison for four years just for obscenity. And that that was pretty recent. Uh, 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, the Clinton administration, a Republican House, Democrat Senate, Democrat president signed into law not one but two anti-indecency bills, the Communications Decency Act and the Child Online Protection Act, which even went even further and banned material that appealed to the prurient interest. Today, probably most people have never even heard that phrase, prurient mm-hmm. interest. Uh, we just think that it's not possible to make distinctions between good and bad things. There was a conservative columnist a few years ago who defended drag queen story hour as one of the blessings of liberty. I'm mm. not joking. And, and he, he did it because he embraced a radical skepticism. He said, you know, if we don't let perverts twerk for toddlers at the library, why then the left won't get, let us go to church on Sunday? First of all, they already don't want us to go to church on Sunday, <laughs> and they proved it during the coronavirus. But, but second, we have to acknowledge here that if we can't discern between a pervert jiggling for a kid and a pastor preaching the gospel, and we can't discern between anything. What we're admitting is we don't have reason, we don't have moral judgment. And if we don't have those things anymore, unfortunately, we don't have the capacity for self-government. Hmm. We can't uh, end our conversation without making reference to Dr. Fauci. You point out in the book that in the early days of the epidemic, Dr. Fauci had one clear message for the public. It was stop wearing masks. And according to the good doctor, masking didn't um, just fail to stop the spread of the virus. It actually damaged public health. Then a month later, they all changed their minds. Um, in your chapter in which you uh, write about this, uh, the challenge of the current pandemic and the power that has been uh, wielded and the language that's been used, uh, not for the sake of conveying scientific truth, but for uh, reasons of manipulating the public, um, is an important uh, example of where we are today and what we need to be uh, mindful of moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about um, the 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 challenge that we're currently in and uh, how this uh, locking down dissent has uh, pretty much set in? Yes, I think Dr. Fauci is the high priest of this story. And he may not even know it. It is funny when you look at Fauci's early statements and he said, don't wear the mask, the masks don't work. And then later he said, you have to wear the mask. And then when he was asked what changed his mind, he admitted it wasn't science. He said it was a political consideration. He wanted to save the masks for his nurse friends. And so he lied to the people and said that the masks don't work when he really believed that they did. And Fauci has misled and lied many times over his career. He's a politician. That's what politicians do. But but he doesn't acknowledge that he's a politician. He actually came out and said that what he does is not political. And this is an absurd statement because public health is by definition political. Political and public are 
are synonyms. Dr. Fauci has worked for the government for, for six presidential administrations. <laughs> he gets a paycheck from the government. He is a politician. And uh, what progressivism has done for the past century is has taken away power from the people and given it to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats who uh, allegedly know better than all of us how we ought to live our lives. And we are supposed to mindlessly acquiesce to whatever they think. I'm not suggesting that Dr. Fauci's never had a good idea in his life. I have yet to hear it, but I'm not saying that. He might have good advice. But what is so offensive, what is so bizarre, is that Dr. Fauci is to be believed not on the basis of whether his advice is right or not. He is to be believed regardless of what he says, even if what he says today contradicts what he mm-hmm. said just a few hours ago. That, that is the kind of radical redefinitional power that the left is wielding in their language games. And I, I, it, they're doing it so well that they hide their tracks and they've convinced a large number of people that what they're doing isn't even really politics. Well, in fact, if you are questioning what's been said today and what's been said a week ago, you fall in the category of, of um, you know, terrorists. You're a danger to the to the nation. Right. You write in this chapter, Locking Down Dissent, the left's abuse of scientific credentials to affect political ends long predates the coronavirus pandemic, going back at least to the earliest days of global warming, then known as global cooling. Who knows what it'll be known in the days ahead? So this is there's nothing new under the sun, um, if you will. Now, we're just about out of time. Let me invite you to speak to our listeners today about whether or not you're optimistic, what we need to do to resist the tide, uh, first by understanding what political correctness is and then responding correctly, if you will. I do believe that th- there is some hope. I, ac- I actually do have that glimmer of hope because of the American people, and because the left has so overplayed its hand and because reality does reassert itself in the end, though, though people who live in delusion can take us on a bad journey in the meantime. Uh, well, I think what needs to happen now is that the right needs to stop focusing on its procedural abstract arguments about this totally pie-in-the-sky free speech that has never existed in practice. The fact is that an abstract notion of free speech doesn't mean anything to people who don't have anything to say. And all that the right has been able to agree on since the end of the Cold War is on the importance of temporarily cutting taxes. And I I think that that is not a governing philosophy. And we need to recognize what our views of the good, the true, and the beautiful and and right and wrong are. And and we need to pursue our political vision. And we need to be able to articulate it. Otherwise, we're going to leave a vacuum that is going to be filled by the left. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one way to begin that process in our own hearts and minds is by reading Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, published by Regnery. Michael Knowles, first of all, thank you for the book and thank you for taking time to talk with us here today. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a great afternoon. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. When you hear 8% inflation bandied about but feel certain that your costs are rising at a far higher rate, well, you're not crazy. In fact, L. Uh, Reynolds wrote a, a piece on that very subject, pointing out that inflation is significantly higher in some areas than is being reported. Well, the Labor Department's March inflation numbers released this month skyrocketed past February's, and it hit a 12-month increase of 8.5% and the steepest annual increase since 1981. Now, we've all heard that. That's no false, a small figure, but most Americans know the inflation they encounter at the grocery store checkout, at the gas pump, the car lot, and the leasing office is far higher than that. 
And if that's what you um, that's what you think, you'd be right. Well, just look at the basic items like groceries and gas, and you'll see how much higher those necessities are climbing than the generic inflation figures that are slapped across headlines. Well, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or BLS, in the average U.S. city, ground beef is up 14.9% since last March. Now, that's a poor man's cut of meat. We eat a lot of ground beef. Uh, boneless stew beef is up 24.3%. Bacon is up 23.1%. Boneless chicken breasts up 17.6%. Eggs up 25.9%. Milk is up 17%. Frozen orange juice concentrate is up 18%. And ground coffee, it's up 15.8%. Now, meanwhile, fuel oil has jumped a whopping 71.5%. And utility gas is up 23.3%. Well, many of these um, these numbers don't even capture how deeply prices have risen for middle America. In the Midwest, ground beef has risen 24.5%. That's almost 10% points more than the urban average. Well, the BLS uh, breaks down beef products into ground beef, steaks, stew beef, etc. And it's all... Um, other uncooked beef categories shows a drastic 38.2% jump in the Midwest compared to a still high rise of 25.4% in the cities. Well, the inflation of the prices of bacon in the Midwest is 3% points higher. Well, the price of boneless chicken breasts, I bought some just last night in the Midwest. Of course, I bought it in the Pacific Northwest. It jumped by 31.2% compared to 17.6% in U.S. cities. That's about what I paid, 17% higher. Well, in all likelihood, these prices aren't done climbing. Investment firm Evercore, it's an ISI, they projected the price of chicken breasts are going to jump at a year-over-year rate of about 70%. That's 70% in the first half of this year, with beef and pork prices rising 20%. So when you hear 8% inflation bandied about but feel certain that your costs are rising at a far higher rate, you're not crazy. You're just feeling what's actually happening. The very real consequences of inflationary policies that Washington types are happy to brush off or suggest that, well, you're just um, discontent and need to you know, let go of some unnecessary item. Well, don't listen to CNN Journal explaining to you why inflation can uh, can actually be good for everyday Americans and bad for rich people. Uh, as Axios reported from the Labor Department statistics, shoppers with incomes of less than $40,000 aren't buying as much fresh meat and seafood. They're turning to frozen meat or canned stuff instead and buying more store brands. Uh, it's these lower income shoppers who are most at risk of food prices when they rise. It's also not just gas and groceries that are rising higher and faster than the nationally reported inflation numbers. Now, according to a Redfin analysis, February saw a 15 percent year over year increase in asking rent and a 31 percent jump in the national homebuyers median monthly mortgage rate. Americans in the market to buy used vehicles have also seen a far higher price spike than the overall inflation rate in the past year at a whopping 41.2 percent as reported in March. Well, at the same time, wages can't keep pace with rising expenses, meaning Bidenflation, as some critics refer to it, is skimming off the top of Americans' paychecks to the tune of about $4,200 in annual depreciation of the average salary's worth. So you put all of that together and things are getting tough and they're saying a recession is just around the bend. 
Well, these are unsustainable numbers for most Americans, especially those who aren't making as much as the politicians pushing bloated multi-trillion dollar spending plans to flood the economy with cash that's bleeding value. Legacy media outlets might try to downplay rising inflation as something that could be solved by eating lentils and letting the family uh, pet die. But Amer- and these are actually suggestions that have been made. But Americans know every time that they buy groceries. And again, I went to the grocery store last night and I'm still suffering from sticker shock. Every time you fill your gas tank, which I did the day before yesterday, or pay the utility bill, How hard high spending inflationary policies are making their lives, making our lives, certainly making mine. So the numbers that we're hearing are an understatement. And then you talk about um, forgetting the uh, student loan, and that's going to have an impact on inflation as well, where higher income earners who are college educated uh, will forego their obligation in favor of the rest of the, uh, the American taxpayers actually paying their loans. And that will... Uh, have a significant inflationary impact on lower and middle income folks as well. So something to keep in mind um, when you do open the wallet, pull out the uh, the card or lay down the cash, things are significantly more expensive than they were just a short time ago. I want to mention that tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a brief conversation with Dinesh D'Souza. He is releasing an upcoming movie. It's titled 2000 Mules. And what are you suggesting is this is an abuse of our election system that he has documented. It's going to have a limited release in theaters, but it will be available on other platforms in the not too distant future. We'll talk all about that in the second hour of tomorrow's program. Dinesh D'Souza and his upcoming movie, 2000 Mules, it will be released, a limited release here in the, the Portland metro area. That's coming up next mu- uh, next month. Also, we'll be talking with Wes Walterman, who is the uh, director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Now, those of you who are regular attenders, you may recall that Wes was not directing the Singing Christmas Tree Choir last year. He was told just days before opening night that he needed open heart surgery and he needed it well now. And so while he was uh, in surgery and recovering from surgery, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree moved forward with his associate doing the directing. Well, Wes is going to join us tomorrow to talk about the Singing Christmas Trees hymn sing that's coming up next month as well. And if you've uh, ever attended, you know you'll want to attend again. And if you haven't, this is a great opportunity to uh, sing along the great hymns of the faith, to hear a great choir present those hymns and some soloists that you uh, may be familiar with if you're a regular attender of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. That's coming up uh, tomorrow in the second hour of the program as well. I'll take this opportunity to mention that I um, won't be singing with the tree this time around for the hymn sing, and it would have taken a major event to prevent me from joining them. The hymn sing is one of my all-time favorite events that we do together. But Dan Rice and I are going to celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary. It comes up on May 8th, which is next week. Is that right? Next week. Uh, Anyway, it's the end of next week. We are going to take a few days and enjoy the celebration in Hawaii. We kind of decided at the last minute that we were able to pull that off. And so uh, we're going to be flying out next week, spending a few days, and we'll be back live in studio on Tuesday of uh, the following week. We have some great guest hosts that will be filling in in my absence, so I think you'll really enjoy that. In fact, you'll probably really, really enjoy those guest hosts, so I'm looking forward to sharing more about that uh, later in the week, but just wanted to uh, to let you know. I wasn't sure I was going to survive long enough for my 40th anniversary, but I'm grateful that God, in His gracious uh, mercy, has 
um, healed me to the point that I'm able to uh, to travel and celebrate with Dan Rice. So I'll tell you more about that later in the week as well. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.